Father, we thank you that it is to your glory to conceal things. There are things we don't need to know. And because you're God, and we are not, we can rest in the fact that you will tell us and give us everything that we do need to know. Tonight, as we study your word in 1 Kings chapter 8, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to understand you. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to draw closer to you. May you be glorified in our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we covered the building of the temple and the other structures Solomon built and everything else that went into the temple. You know, I mean, quite literally pots and pans and forks and ladles and basins and so on and so forth. Uh, When the temple was finished, it was time to set it all up, to dedicate it, and to begin using it as the place of sacrifice and worship for the people of Israel. And chapter 8 is the record of the temple being put into service. Why, thank you. And because chapter 8 is 66 verses long, we're only going to do one chapter tonight. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the Ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Oreb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. In the seventh month, the month of Ethanim, and um, my, my daughter and my wife and anybody else who's a Lord of the Rings nerd will appreciate this. Every time I read that while I was studying this chapter, all I could think is it's got to be an elf. His name, Ethanim. If you've read Lord of the Rings, that's how many of the elfish names sound. I don't know why. Uh, in the Jewish calendar, it's actually the month of Tishri. Uh, it is our right about now, uh, late September, early October, 
is when that was taking place. So the feast that they referred to, uh, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast there in verse 2, would have been the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you remember from the law when we were studying Leviticus, and if you don't, that's okay, uh, there were three feasts that all of the Jewish men between ages 20 and 50 were required to attend. It was uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Passover. And those are out of order. Passover becomes before Pentecost. But those three feasts were required. Now, we know how large the standing army was at this time from counts we have a little earlier on in Scripture. Uh, so there was a guess that there were probably around a million men there. That's quite a bit. Quite a bit of folks. Now, everyone gathers to bring the ark and all the furnishings up. And as they came up, they offered sacrifices without number. Remember back to when the Philistines captured the ark, way back in uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel. And there were all kinds of problems with that, weren't there? The, uh, well, Eli and his sons, Phineas, was it Phineas and Hophni? Were those his sons? Anyways, they died. Uh, the ark was captured. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And in the morning, Dagon was on his face before the ark. So they set, the, they set Dagon back up thinking, well, there you go, no big deal. The next morning, Dagon, his head had come off and his hands had come off and he was on his face before the ark. So they're like, well, we better, we better move the ark. So they moved the ark to another city. And in that city, all the men broke out with boils and the, uh, they got a rat infestation. And they're finally like, well, what are we supposed to do? Send it back. So they put it on a cart and they sent it back. Well, when they sent it back, um, they went, David went down to get it. And a man by the name of Uzzah reached out his hand to stable the ark. And God killed him because he was not allowed to touch the ark. So they put it in, in, in a guy's house, and I can't remember his name, where it stayed for quite a while. Now, David eventually opened up the Bible. He read in the law where it said how the ark was to be transported with the poles through the rings so nobody actually touched it by, um, oh gosh, it was certain children of Levi. And so they went back down, they put the poles in, the children of Levi who were supposed to be carrying the ark carried it up to Jerusalem. And every time they went six steps, they stopped and they sacrificed. And I think I'm going to get this number wrong, but I'm close. If you figure out the distance that they traveled, it was something like uh, they stopped 2,500 times in order to get the ark there and sacrifice every six steps. Um, so, you know, that's kind of important that they did this. So they get there, though. They bring the ark in, they bring all the furnishing in, and the priests and Levites bring it up. The whole congregation is gathered. They're sacrificing sheep and oxen. They take the ark into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple, where they had set up two cherubim on either side with their wings outstretched to cover the ark. All of this we talked about last week being a picture of God's throne room in heaven. Uh, and then they mentioned to us, because nobody would know this except the priests, if it wasn't written here for us, that they took the poles out and they set them down and the poles were so long they stuck out of the inner sanctuary. 
And so the priests, if they went into the holy place, could see the poles. But remember, only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Was that enough random information about them taking the ark up to Jerusalem? (laughs) So they finally get it there. And the only thing left in the ark are the two tablets of stone. Now, again, if you go back, and I believe this is recorded for us in numbers, but I could be mistaken about that. There were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. The two tablets that contained what we know as the Ten Commandments. A jar of manna. Now, it was actually a golden jar filled with manna, but to remind the people of God's miraculous provision for them while they were in the desert. And the third thing was Aaron's rod that budded. When, um, I think it was the sons of Korah challenged the leadership of Aaron. Moses said, fine, everybody put forth a man. And everybody bring a rod and put your name on the rod. And in the morning, whoever's rod has budded, right? Because rods that were taken from trees don't bud when they're not attached to the trees anymore. Uh, Well, that's the one that God has chosen. Well, in the morning, not only had Aaron's rod budded, there were actually almonds on it clearly showing that Aaron had been chosen as the high priest. Well, that was in there too. So what happened to them? We don't know. Best guess is that when um, the Philistines stole the ark, they opened it and they took the jar of manna because it was made of gold. What they did with the rod, I have no idea, but they left the tablets of stone. Exactly why? That was their choice. I have no idea. They probably had no idea what was written on the tablets of stone. The Philistines most likely did not read Hebrew. And I say that it's whatever form of Hebrew they were using at the time, which is probably very different than what we have today. But all that was left was the two tablets of stone, which is really cool because the two tablets of stone were written on by the finger of God. Now, a lot of people ask, and we'll get into this uh, much later as we go through the Old Testament. um, Where's the ark? And we don't really know. There is a tribe in Africa somewhere that claims they have it. But the interesting thing about that claim is they refuse to let anybody see it. I don't don't know. If I tell you I got a million dollars in my pocket, well, let me see it. No. You're going to believe I got a million dollars in my pocket? So I'm kind of sorry. I don't, if they tell us they have the ark, but no one's allowed to look at it, I'm kind of thinking they don't really have the ark. Tradition tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar took the people captive, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, took all of the gold articles and everything out of the treasury of the house of God, out of the temple itself, that Jeremiah actually hid the ark. That's what tradition tells us. But it doesn't tell us where He hid the ark, and it doesn't tell us what happened to the ark later on. What we do know is when they came back from captivity and they rebuilt the temple, we read about this in the book of Ezra, um, what's known as Zerubbabel's temple, because right there was Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, then there was um, um, Herod's temple, and then there's the temple that's described for us in Ezekiel, which is the one that will be built during the tribulation. Zerubbabel's temple, which is really a rebuilding of Solomon's temple, and Herod's temple is really an expanding of Zerubbabel's temple. 
um, didn't have the ark in it. So when they came back from captivity after 70 years and they rebuilt the temple, they didn't know where the ark was. Now, there's a bunch of people that say they found it or they have evidence of it and so on and so forth. And you know what? I'm guessing the ark's out there somewhere. Uh, I think it'd be kind of cool if we found it. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, if I were the one to find the ark, I wouldn't open it because I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I know what happens when you open the ark and I don't want my face to melt. But that's neither here nor there. Once everything was in, in verse 10, it says that the priest came out of the holy place and that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon spoke and said, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house in a place for you to dwell forever. So as the glory of the Lord fills the temple, the priest could not continue ministering. One of the saddest moments in Scripture, to me anyway, is uh, recorded for us in the book of Ezekiel when the glory of the Lord departs the temple. Oh, it, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for Ezekiel to see it, and it's heartbreaking to consider because even after they rebuilt the temple after captivity and Herod expanded upon it, we have nothing that tells us that the glory of the Lord ever returned. Which is, I mean, it's heartbreaking. The glory of the Lord, of course, did return to Israel when Jesus was born. But that's another study. Now, there are some who like to use this passage to justify what has been come to be called being slain in the spirit. Uh, however, there is no place in the Bible that records being slain in the spirit. Um, I think quite often it's, it's just emotional. And that's not what this cloud was about. This cloud was a picture of the glory of the Lord. And when it says that the priest could not minister, it doesn't mean that they, they were knocked down and couldn't get back up. It, it doesn't say anything like that. So I think it's a, it's a misrepresentation of this passage. Now, we do have one example of, of two people actually being slain in the Spirit. Um, and that's Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, when they agreed to lie to the Holy Spirit about how much money they had sold their land for, and the Holy Spirit killed them. Um, so if somebody tells me, you know, they were slain in the Spirit and they're still alive, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question that experience. Um, but using this verse to justify it is, is definitely a poor interpretation of this scripture. Now, Solomon's comment that's going to lead into his speech, and really a big part of the rest of the chapter is Solomon speaking. Um, first, a prayer of dedication, and then speaking to the people. What We're going to get there in a moment. But he talks about God dwelling in a cloud. And he says, The Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. And I have surely built you an exalted house for you to dwell in. So he makes this comment. Well, where did God say this? And there's three places, actually. Leviticus 16.2, Psalm 18.11, and Psalm 97.2. In all three places, God said he would dwell in the cloud. Leviticus 16 specifically says dark, I think. Um, 
Then Solomon declares, so this is a fulfillment of those prophecies, and then Solomon declares that he had built God an exalted house where he would dwell on earth forever. Now Solomon is going to recognize in a little bit that this house could not hold God, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 14. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, one question, and I don't know if you have this question, but I thought about it. What happened to all the other stuff that was in the tabernacle? Right, Because there was a lampstand in the tabernacle. There was a table of showbread. There was an altar of sacrifice. And apparently all of that was gone. And even if it wasn't gone, it was unnecessary because they remade all of it in bronze. But just a thought, you know, because the only thing he mentions is that they brought the ark in. They don't mention anything else. Now, his speech here is a reiteration that David could not build the temple. But he, as David's son on the throne of Israel, did build the temple in accordance with the word that God had spoken to David. And he actually spoke this word to David through the prophet Nathan back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he blesses God for the fulfillment of his word. And we're going to see this theme throughout the rest of the chapter, really the faithfulness of God, which is, uh, explains my song choices for tonight. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Matthew 5.18, Jesus adds to this, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The yacht and the tittle, in case you don't know, were kind of like punctuation marks, right? Uh, Hebrew didn't have, you know, periods, exclamation points, question marks, commas, semicolons, and whatnot. Um, but it's kind of like crossing the T's and dotting the I's, so to speak. Not even 
a dot. Sitting above a letter is going to go unfulfilled till heaven and earth pass away. I think that's pretty incredible. And Solomon says that it was in David's heart and that was good. And I do think that's an interesting statement because God knows our hearts. And he knows, well, he knows when our hearts are wrong, right? Even if our actions are right, right? If you do a right action with a wrong heart, God is not impressed by that. Other people might see it and be impressed by it, but God is not impressed by it because he knows what's in your heart. But I think there's some people that they may not do quite the right thing, but they did whatever they did with a right heart before God. And God sees that as well. Verse 22. Now, we're reading a big, long section because we're going to read all the way through verse 53. You ready? Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. We actually find out a little later that he did kneel. And this was on the altar of sacrifice. And if you remember the picture from last week when we went through the building of the temple, um, the altar of sacrifice was elevated and there were steps that went up to it. And that's where Solomon was at making this prayer. And so here it is. Verse 23, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, my, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant, David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? Real quick, it's kind of interesting that three heavens are mentioned there. We do know in Scripture that there are three heavens. What we know is the terrestrial heaven, what is our atmosphere, the celestial heaven, which is the universe, the stars and the planets and so on and so forth. And then the third heaven, which is described for us up in 2 Corinthians. Don't quote me on that. First or 2 Corinthians, I don't remember. Um, but the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. So when he says heaven, the terrestrial heaven, and then the heaven of heavens, right, the celestial and the dwelling place of God cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? Verse 28, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of the people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So he begins this declaration that there's only one God. He is a faithful God who keeps covenant. He's merciful. 
He keeps his promises and he prays that those promises will come true. And then he notes that the heaven of heavens can't contain him, much less this temple. And it's important that we never limit God to a locality. Right? This is a building. God doesn't live here. Where does he live? In us, by the Holy Spirit, which is really incredible. And he asked God to hear the prayer. He asked him to keep his eyes upon the temple. And he asked that when people pray toward the temple, that he would forgive them. Now, before we move forward, I do find something very... The continuity of Scripture is is mind-boggling to me. If you remember Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, after the kingdom of Babylon was overthrown and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is killed, um, Darius, or Darius, takes the throne as kind of a vassal under Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was Cyrus who actually let the people go back. But the, all the satraps and governors, they hated Daniel because he was Darius's favorite. And so they came up with a plan, right? They're Daniel, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. So the only thing they could come up with is, well, we've got to get some kind of law in place that will make Daniel guilty before the king in some aspect of his faith toward God. So they come up with a law and they say, oh, Darius, live forever. We think you should pass a law, Darius, that if anybody in all the kingdom prays to anybody but you, they should be thrown into the lion's den. Darius goes, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think I'm a pretty great guy, right? People should pray to me. And I love, there's a scripture in there, and I don't know where it's at, but it says, when Daniel heard this, he went to his house, he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and he knelt down and he prayed three times that day. Dude, Daniel's a beast. You just got to think about that. If you pray, we're going to feed you the lions. Okay, not only am I going to pray, I'm going to open my windows. And I'm going to show you that I'm praying. But he prayed toward Jerusalem because he was praying toward the temple. And that comes all the way back to here because Daniel would have known the scripture that when you pray toward the temple, God would hear. Now we know better. Right? We don't have to, uh, wherever you live in town, you don't have to open your window and face the church in order for God to hear your prayers. You don't have to look up to heaven or you don't have to focus on your navel. You don't have to do any of those things because God is everywhere all the time. Uh, And because he dwells inside of us, we are constantly in the presence of God, even if we don't always recognize it. But I see here the continuity of scripture because you're talking a period of, of, of hundreds of years between this and Daniel. Verse 31. When anyone sins against his neighbor. Now, just so you know, ahead of time, Solomon is going to list seven possible scenarios when the people would pray. Maybe it's a matter of justice, an issue of sin, an issue of keeping God's commands, whatever it is. There's seven scenarios here. And when whatever the case, Solomon asked God to hear those prayers, to forgive when necessary, and to be not only with himself, but also with the people of Israel. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act. 
And judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and they confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Verse 37, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand towards this temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you give to our fathers. So each of those situations has to do with some kind of sin, doesn't it? My favorite statement is there in verse 38. Right? Whatever prayer, whatever supplication, right? It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they ask. And whether it's by anyone or by everyone, when everybody realizes the plague of his own heart. And the plague of our heart has been, is, and always will be sin. But what does he say? When he spreads your hands, his hands towards the temple, Hear, forgive, and act. It's no different for us. Again, you know, we don't have to pray toward the temple. But when we realize the plague of our heart is acting up, 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just. I think that is one of the most apt descriptions of what sin does to us. That it's a plague. Verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name, and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. That is an incredible section to me. Just like the church is meant to be a light to the world, so was Israel. Did we talk about this last week? I think so. We talked about the court of the Gentiles last week. Here Solomon says, when a foreigner comes, right? Not part of Israel, but they're going to hear about you. They're going to come here. They're going to worship. And when they pray, Lord, listen to their prayers so that all the peoples of the earth can know you and fear you. That was Israel's job. What happened when they didn't do their job? 
the nation was destroyed. That also was because they rejected the Messiah. It's our job, too. I think we need to do it, each and every one of us. Verse 44, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Right? So if they go out to battle and they pray, you know what, God, help us out, then help them. But, verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive, and they repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and they pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you in all their transgressions which they have, which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance who you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call on you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord Jehovah. Wow. Solomon just prayed for something that was going to happen in a couple hundred years. The people turned away from God. Nebuchadnezzar came in, besieged the city, actually left quite a few of the Israelites there the first time. Then they rebelled. And then he left nobody but the poor and Jeremiah. Took them all captive. Now Jeremiah wrote in his book, that they would be captive for 70 years. When you get to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, you know, Lord, the other day, I was reading the book of Jeremiah, and I saw the place where the prophet wrote that we would be in captivity for 70 years, and Lord, I did a little bit of math, and we've been here for 70 years. And Daniel proceeds in the first 21 verses of Daniel chapter 9 to repent for the sin of his people. And when he does, God has compassion on them. And God sends in Cyrus. And when Cyrus gets in there and overthrows the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, well, really, his um, grandson, uh, I can't think of his name, Belshazzar, I think, but I might not be right. He overthrows his kingdom. When he gets in there, all the Jewish people gathered around King Cyrus, and they said, oh, King Cyrus, we've got to show you something. And what did they show him? Well, they showed King Cyrus a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would let the Jews go home. And when Cyrus read that, he was like, wow, all right, you guys can go home. And that's all recorded for us in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. The word of God is awesome, people. It is so, so cool. 
It's just incredible to me the way all of this works out. But it's exactly what Solomon is praying when they get taken captive and they figure out that they blew it and they pray and they repent and Lord have mercy on them and bring them home because they're your people. That your eyes may be open. That you would listen when they call. For you separated them, verse 53, from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. Separated from all the peoples of the earth. Now the word separated here is similar to the word we have in the New Testament which is translated sanctify. God set apart his people for a special or specific purpose. He did that for Israel. And then guess what? He did it for us. In John 10, verse 16, Jesus said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Right? This fold speaks of Israel. The other sheep speaks of us as Gentiles. God's desire was, is, and will always be for Israel to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And to bring the Gentiles in together so we could be one flock. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 17, it is described to us as something that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. And all the more, the majority of the church has been historically Gentiles. There were Jewish believers at the start. There are Jewish believers today. And now, whether we are Jew or Gentile, we are all called to be sanctified and set apart as God's holy people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 states, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I always, I kind of cringe at the idea of race. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people want to make everything about what we look like on the outside. You know, are you white? Are you black? Are your eyes different shape than mine, right? Now, can you grow an afro? Now, I'm a white guy who, when I was younger, could grow an afro. Man, my hair got big when it was long. But who cares? You want to know what separates the chosen race? It's not the color of skin, the color of hair, the shape of eyes, the country of origin, the language spoken, gender. It's none of that. You want to know what the difference is? Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have. And in God's kingdom, that is all that matters. I don't ever look at somebody, and maybe they have more melanin in their skin than I do. It doesn't make any difference to me. 
they're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. They're a brother or sister in Christ. And if I see someone who's not, or meet someone who's not, again, I don't care what they look like. All I care about is that they they have not yet received the mercy of God, purchased for them by the blood of Christ on the cross. And I want to share that with them. Verse 54. Solomon blesses the assembly. I love this. So it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord. I just, just real quick, I wonder if he wrote it down. You ever think about, I just, I have, these questions go through my mind. I don't know if anybody else ever thinks this stuff, but I think about this stuff sometimes. Did he write this down and read it? Or is this just spirit-led prayer? Either way, it's cool. But when he was done, he arose from before the altar of the Lord. Remember, I told you earlier that he knelt before the altar. It didn't tell us earlier, but it tells us here. Because he arose before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. It has not failed one word of all his good promises which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways to keep all his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel each as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that Jehovah is God, and there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to Jehovah our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Oh, I love the blessing of the people. He blesses God for keeping his word, praying again that God would not forsake them and that God would turn their hearts toward himself and so that the people would keep his word and walk with him. This, of course, has all been fulfilled for us in Christ because he praises God here for giving them rest. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, what works do we cease from to enter the rest of God? We cease from all of our attempts to try to make ourselves righteous before him. And we rest in the finished work of Christ. He asks for God to help them to walk with him, to never leave them or forsake them. This is repeated in Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never once have we ever walked alone. Never once has he left us on our own. Never once. And why? So that our hearts would be loyal to our God to walk in his ways. Jesus told us in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper. This is verse 15 to 21. That he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, 
but it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What an incredible promise. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 reminds us that we should walk worthy of God, who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. I do like the statement at the end of verse 59, that God would maintain the cause of his servants as each day may require. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I don't know about you, but I think some days, no, I don't think. I know for a fact that there are some days where I need God to maintain my cause a whole lot more than some other days. Now, I need him to maintain my cause every day because I can't do it by myself. I can't do it at all. But I love the idea and the fact that his all-sufficient grace is always going to be everything that I need in every situation I face. Verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him threw a big old party. That's what it says in the Message Bible. In the New King James, it puts it this way. The king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. That's a lot of animals. Now, remember, a peace offering, right? There were sacrifices for sin and transgression and and whatnot, but a peace offering was a fellowship offering. This was an offering where God got part of the sacrifice and it was burned on the altar and then the people got part of the sacrifice to eat, symbolically eating together. We have a similar ordinance as the church. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. But this was, I mean, just imagine 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. All was one big barbecue. God got part of it. The people got the rest. It was one big barbecue. Verse 64. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, right? So there were so many animals being killed, the altar wasn't big enough. So what they did is they sanctified or or consecrated the whole courtyard, and all the priests were in there killing and cooking animals all over the place. Verse 65, at the time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days And seven more days, 14 days on the eighth day. Now, this is the eighth day after the second set of seven days. Keep that in mind, right? He didn't send people home in the middle of the feast. But on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. So all these offerings, all this amazing feast takes place for two weeks And on the eighth day, which was the eighth day after the second set of seven days, so really the 15th day, everybody went home 
and they blessed the king. Now, real quick, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. It is actually one of my favorite psalms. I landed on Psalm 97.2, where it says clouds and darkness surround him, speaking of God, just so you know. Um, But Psalm 103. Oh, I just, I love this psalm. This is what we're going to close with. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Praise God indeed. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of a field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Have you ever considered that phrase real quick? I was just going to read this, but the phrase everlasting to everlasting there is pretty awesome. In Hebrew, it literally means from vanishing point to vanishing point. Now, how far back can you remember? Now, my very first memory is actually a terrible memory, uh, so I'm not going to share it with you, but my very first memory. But I can't remember anything beyond that. I don't go any farther back than that. Now, think how far ahead can you think? Can you think on into eternity? Right? And if you do that long enough, your brain's going to start leaking out your ears because we can't imagine a place that doesn't, isn't bound by time. But now, think of God. He's eternal. What's vanishing point to vanishing point to him? It doesn't exist. Because he's eternal. And his mercy is from vanishing point to vanishing point. It's a really fancy and roundabout way to say something very simple. His mercy is inexhaustible. And I am so grateful for it. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of the word, heeding the voice of his word, sorry. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here is Israel at the height of their devotion. To God. 
this time of the hearts of the people being turned towards God will unfortunately be short-lived. It will begin to wane under Solomon because Solomon begins to disobey God. And it's all downhill from there. Once Solomon leaves office in in a few chapters, right? uh, I think it's chapter 12, he leaves office in 1 Kings. Well, leaves office, he dies. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Now, there are points of revival. There are points of restoration. But even those are short-lived because eventually the king that prompted that revival dies and the people go right back to their sin. That's why it's so important that our faith is founded on the word of God and not emotion. I've said this before, but I find it to be incredibly true. Emotions change, right? We know that. Moods change. Our situations change. And even though that happens, right? The Bible says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. So we base our faith on God's word because faith doesn't come from our emotion. Faith doesn't come from our experiences. Faith doesn't come from our highs. Faith Faith doesn't come from our situation. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. According to Romans 10, 17. Now God will keep all his word and all his promises as we see declared here by Solomon. So we seek him in his word and we rest in his truth. One of the reasons that it is so vital for us to study the Old Testament is because we see over and over and over again that God keeps his promises. And the reason that's so vital for us to understand is because there's a lot of promises in the Old Testament that haven't taken place just yet. And there's a ton of promises in the New Testament that haven't taken place just yet. But when we study all these places where God keeps his promises, it builds our faith to know that he's going to fulfill the rest. Now, next week, God will appear to Solomon a second time. We're going to explore that encounter. But until then, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised us you will never leave us or forsake us. I thank you that you have given us your word. And you have promised us that you will fulfill your word. Front to back, side to side, not one Yacht or tittle of it will fail, but you will fulfill it all. And I thank you for that promise, because it's on those promises that we rest. My favorite one, Jesus told us, I go to prepare a place for you. It means I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that you can be where I am. It's my favorite, Lord. And I can't wait till it happens. Maranatha. Until then, may we serve you. May we walk in your ways. May our hearts be turned towards you. May we every day rely upon your grace that will maintain our cause no matter what that day brings. And in all things, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name.
Amen.